Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the show that puts you, the listener, in the driver's seat. Because you are the content. The phone lines are open to be a part of the program. It's a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. Give me a call and we'll talk about your tech questions or business and tech questions. Linux advocate, above all else, small business owner, and now host of the only show centered around you, the listener. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. My name is Noah Chalaya. So I am back in Grand Forks. Home sweet home again. Happy to be home. And I am fighting the con crud. My wife uh, came out to Seattle and we had a great time chatting with the team at JB, meeting a bunch of people, meeting all of you at Linux Fest Northwest. But unfortunately, uh, we brought, as Chris is describing them, Super North Dakota bugs. And Super North Dakota bugs then infected a bunch of people at the conference, including Chris and his fiance. And I am still fighting that. So you'll have to excuse my uh, my voice today, I am trying to squeak to make noises here into the microphone. But be that as it may, I thoroughly enjoyed my time in Seattle. I thoroughly enjoyed my time at Jupiter Broadcasting. And one thing that I realized while I was there is that I have a real problem with Unity going away. And I came to that realization because I hate GNOME. Okay, so I, I don't actually hate GNOME. But GNOME out of the box, to me is not nearly as polished as Unity. And again, I'm talking about strictly out of the box. So now, if there's one thing I can count on Cloud Connector Chris for, it's his ability to have a good eye. He knows what looks good. The man is has attention to detail. So, in fact, I can exemplify that because throughout the entire weekend, I kept hearing people ask him to sit down and show them all of the tweaks that he has done to make his desktop perfect. The reason for that is because if you're around Chris for any amount of time, what you learn very quickly is that GNOME may suck straight out of the box, but once he gets done with it, it is a fantastically beautiful desktop. So I did what any good broadcaster would do. I took careful notes. I had him sit down with me and show me how to customize my desktop, and I documented that entire procedure, and then I made a show out of it before he has a chance to. (laughs) So um, GNOME out of the box is pretty unusable, to be honest with you. And the reality is that there is only so much that the GNOME desktop team can do. And when you're, my wife and I actually got into a debate about this. We were talking about what we should be able to expect from GNOME. And what we landed on is there is only so much that a small team can do with the budget that they have. And we found that out by looking at what the budget for the GNOME desktop is from the GNOME Foundation. Now, obviously, there's a lot of developments that happen other places as well, right? Red Hat obviously donates to GNOME. People in the Arch community obviously donate to GNOME. SUSE donates to GNOME. I'm sure Canonical is going to be writing a check to fund the development of GNOME. But by and large, one of the big things that we have to acknowledge is that the budget is not there like it is for macOS or Windows. The budget is not there like it is for uh, even Unity. 
the team at the, the development team that Canonical had behind Unity. So, what? Uh, so, so basically, what what I determined was that GNOME may not be usable out of the box, but you can customize it, and that's one of the great things about GNOME is the extension systems. Now, for a long time, we used to take a hardline approach that if you had to apply all of these extensions, then it wasn't really usable. And what we found was that, or what we, I guess what we came to the realize, and I'll, I'll give full credit to, to Chris for this, it, it's not that it, we, the extension system is what actually makes GNOME great. Uh, 1-855-450-NOAA, that's 1-855-450-6624. If you have a question or a comment about the uh, GNOME desktop, I would love to hear it. So, Undoubtedly, this is going to be a problem for companies like Canonical because they are tasked with delivering a grade A desktop, a highly tuned, highly polished desktop for their users. And I know that there is someone out, out there at Canonical listening to this program right now. I can feel you in my earphones. And so for those of you who are going to be switching to GNOME for the first time, listen up because this is going to take you from hating GNOME compared to Unity like I did to loving it beyond belief. So much so that it will become... I would venture to say your, your favorite desktop. I'm currently on Arch uh, and, Teg and Targos to be exact. So I am going to throw all of these notes into my Arch development uh, uh, wiki thing that I have. And in fact, it, so it's, it's kind of an interesting story. I made a joke, one, not really a joke, but I made a comment on air one time about having a guide that I use to set up Arch. And the response was overwhelming. I don't think I've ever got that much feedback on one specific thing more times. I had people right and left asking me, said, can I get that quick uh, arch guide? And so we have, I have published that and I have, have since made it available. Oh, hi there. Hi there. That's really, that's, uh, that's really interesting that you're going to, oh, good, 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 great. Thank you very much for reading that all on air. I really appreciate that. Um, so I'm currently on Arch, so I'm going to throw all of these in that general Arch guide because that's where I use GNOME, but it will apply to any desk, any any uh, distro that you're using the GNOME desktop on. The first thing I do personally when GNOME starts up for the first time is I disable tap to click on my trackpad. Now, I inadvertently constantly end up clicking on things that I didn't intend to click on, and I tried Antargos on the Librem, and because there was a driver issue... I couldn't disable tap to click on that device and it made the laptop totally unusable for me to the point that I barely made it 24 hours and then I decided I just wasn't going to go through with it and went back to use my ThinkPad. Now, all of these commands and tweaks are going to be in this week's show notes, but this particular one is so easy that I'm just going to read it on air. And it is SynClient, S-Y-N-C-L-I-E-N-T, space, max tap time, all run together, equals zero. Now, that command may or may not work depending on the type of trackpad that you have, but it has been flawless, flawless for me on every laptop I have used it on, with the exception of the Asus Republic of Gamers, which we had to actually write a custom kernel patch to get that trackpad to work. And uh, there, details of that are going to be coming up in the next few weeks. Again, one 450 noaa That's one 450 Give me a call this hour and tell me about your favorite GNOME tweaks or GNOME hacks. Now that we have tap to click disabled and that nonsense is out of the way, the next thing I do 
and this is an Antargos specific thing. They ship Antargos with Yort, but Yort asks me way too many questions. So I used to install Packer, but because Packer is no longer being maintained, or so I'm told by the beard, these days I'm installing Pack AUR. And that's simply just, I use Yort to install Pack AUR. Yort, Tac S, Pack AUR. And then once I have PackAUR installed, now I can actually start installing software and packages that I need, like, for instance, themes, because basically everything under the sun is in the Arch AUR. When I'm installing software, I also install Dconf Editor, and there's a very important tweak that I can no longer live without, and we do that with Dconf Editor, and I'll get to that in just a moment. The default GNOME theme looks ridiculous. That's the best way I can say it. On top of that, if you really want a professional-grade-looking Linux desktop, and I think I speak for both Chris and myself when I say this, the dark theme is the way to go. It takes crappy-looking apps. Take OBS, for example, uh, uh, OBS Studio, which is the software that we were using to actually produce this show. If you install it by default, it comes with a light theme, and it looks like a child's play toy software. It looks like software that somebody pooped out in two minutes. And all you, you go into the settings and you literally change the theme from the normal light one to the dark theme, and it, it takes it to a whole different level. It looks phenomenal. So the Chris prefers the Arc Dark theme, and the exact package for that is Arc, and that's Arc with a C, dash GTK dash theme. Again, this is all going to be in the show notes. But here's where Chris and I have a difference of opinion. Chris is a Chrome user. And in Chrome, ArcDARP theme works just great. The problem is I use Firefox as my daily web browser, mostly because I like the Mozilla Corporation. I like how open and transparent they are, and I genuinely believe they deliver a quality product. But it does not properly render the text color in certain websites. And I don't mean like it looks a little weird. I mean like it's completely unusable. Like there are certain sites that... I, it look, the text is completely 100% invisible. You can't see it at all. I have to, I have to go back and highlight it to be able to see the text. So I'm cur currently using the Numix Frost theme, which still has that darker gradient to it. And it comes installed by default on Entargos. <clears throat> it still has a dark feel, but in fact, I, it actually, it actually almost looks a little more dark because it doesn't have like the bluish tint to it. So I actually, I found that I actually kind of like it better and it definitely works better with Firefox. Now, remember I said we'd make an important tweak to GNOME with Dconf Editor. The one feature that I really liked on Unity, in fact, if you go back, one of the things I really liked on Windows, actually, was ThinkPads used to ship with this thing called uh, the uh, battery, uh, I don't remember what the name of it was, battery tender, something like that. And basically, it made a little image of a battery on your start bar and showed you what the percentage of the battery was. And that was one of the first things I missed when I first came to Linux was I liked being able to see what my battery percentage was. Unity came out and that was just a tick box. It would show you what the battery percentage is. And when I first switched to GNOME, that was the first thing I noticed was it just gives me like, I can know if my battery is high, not so high or dying. And I need more gradient than that. Now, a lot of people will say, well, just use the time remaining. To me, the time remaining is silly because it assumes how I'm going to use the computer to begin with. Now, sometimes... I'm planning the Ask Noah show, so I'm just opened in some live text and writing show notes. Other times, I'm cutting video in Lightworks and rendering that out. And the battery differences between those two tasks is tremendous. So those are very two different tasks, and they affect the battery life very, very differently. There, there used to be a GNOME extension for enabling the battery percent percentages, and 
I will get to how to enable GNOME extensions in a little bit, but as of GNOME 3.20, you can actually enable the battery percentage right out of the box. You just have to do it with uh, Decomf Editor. So we open Decomf Editor, and then again, this is all going to be outlined in the show notes, but org, GNOME, desktop, interface, and then change the, the box that says show battery percentage to true. And now we have a battery percentage right in the corner. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. Now that's all the tweaking under the hood, so to speak. And so I'm going to get to some of the extensions that make GNOME really, really great. The GNOME, uh, the GNOME tweak tool is a pretty cool thing that really allows the GNOME desktop to come into its own. This is where a lot of the magic happens. Once you're inside the GNOME tweak tool, there are a number of different things that, that you can change and it makes it really easy. And we'll get to that in just a moment. I want to run over to the phones real quick. Let's see, who do we have? Uh, we have, uh, who do we have here? Sweet Lou is calling from Pennsylvania. Hi, Sweet Lou. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, what's up, Noah? How's it going? Thank you so much for your ongoing patronage to all of our shows. How are you? How can we help today? Um, I was just wondering, you know, I have given Noah a look before that. And it, it does, you know, it does look pretty nice and everything. It's a nice looking desktop environment. But with that being said, though, it's definitely not meant for uh, people with uh, low-end uh, machines and that. So I wanted to ask the following question. How come GNOME, as it is right now, doesn't have a lightweight version for, you know, people who still want the looks, you know, and you know the niceness of the GNOME desktop and that, but you know, don't necessarily have the money to buy, you know, a machine that would be able to handle it well in that. Well, um, so first of all, I'll tell you that I think that a lot of people that benchmark this stuff, if you actually asked them to measure the resource difference between GNOME and some of the lighter weight desktops, they would tell you that there isn't actually a huge disparity difference between the two that, that, GNOME really doesn't use that much more resources than some of the alternative desktop environments. That said, my answer to those people has been and continues to be sometimes when you're dealing with very low end hardware, every little bit counts. And so even though there isn't a big difference, there is a difference and it's enough that it it's the difference between I can, I can repurpose this old Pentium four computer or I can't. And that may sound ridiculous to some of you, but at Altaspeed Technologies, we have, we're in no short supply of computers, right? We got machines coming out our ears um, and we have access to a lot of different machines and we have access to off-lease machines. And the machine that sits downstairs right now, as you walk in through our back door, that all of our techs check in in the morning, issue their, their, their work orders, update whatever it was they did yesterday, the closeout at the end of the day, all of that stuff is done on an old Lenovo uh, Think Center Pentium 4. And the reason is because if you put a SSD in that, that, in, in that computer, and I think it has like four gigs of RAM or three gigs of RAM, something like that, it is indistinguishable from a newer computer. And so there's no reason to upgrade it. We've just, we've been able to hang on to it for 15 years. And the way we get that kind of life out of that thing is we use desktops like Ubuntu Mate because it's very, very lightweight. And even though it might not be a huge difference between Ubuntu Mate and Ubuntu Gnome, there's enough difference that when we tried to use Ubuntu Gnome on the Pentium 4, it doesn't work. And I'll, 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 I'll take it one step further. The machine that I'm broadcasting on right now 
is a exceptionally powerful machine, really. It has a latest generation, well, second to latest generation Core i5, or Core i7, excuse me. It has 32 gigs of RAM. It has three SSDs in it. And I'm running Ubuntu Mate on it. Why? Ubuntu GNOME is a really great desktop driver. It's really great for your primary desktop because it's good at getting other things out of the way and bringing a single task into focus. So I can put my email in one desktop. I can put my browser in another desktop. I can put my file browser in a third desktop, my terminal app in a fourth desktop or Quake. And I can just using control and alt, use the arrow keys to decide what task I want to work on. I can copy and paste out of my email client into my web browser, and I can do all of those things in full screen without having to lose a lot of desktop real estate for taskbars and widgets and all this other nonsense, right? And it makes it a really great desktop environment to get work done. And here's what's not so great at, when you're mirroring your your uh, your desktop on screen, and if you go back and watch, um, you can see this happen at, at Jupyter Broadcasting sometimes. You'll see, will accidentally activate, and I do it, quite often, actually, inadvertently, I will activate sometimes that activities menu and it cascades all of the windows and all of a sudden that is now going out over the air and it kind of disrupts the magic. Um, so it's not a great desktop environment for what I call utilitarian type things where I just open in this computer, open broadcaster sits open, the chat room gets captured. All I need to do is walk in and hit start capture and start streaming. I, I don't need to worry about switching desktop environment or uh, desktop workspaces, all of that kind of thing. That's not important here. What's important is to be able to just get the work done, just use the computer. Does that make sense to you, Sweet Lou? Yeah, I, I see now. That's a pretty good reason Yeah. Okay. Well, thank so you. Thanks for the yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> there's a little bit of a delay there. So when I think, there's, uh, when I think you guys are, are done talking, I hit the button, and then every once in a while, somebody decides to speak back up. So I'm sorry about that. But thank you very much for the call. We really appreciate it. Wesley is calling from uh, North Carolina. Hi, Wesley. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. I know. How can we help today? Oh, oh sorry. It's a bit hard to hear. Um, I just have a few questions. They're not really uh, that tech-related from more on the business side. I was hoping you could answer a few. Sure. We actually open the program with tech questions or business and tech questions, right? Um, so I am part of a small team and we're thinking about starting a small business. Um, it's mainly revolving around a book project that we're hoping if that does well, turn it into other things like, um, actual comics and games and stuff, but we're kind of starting out is really daunting. It's kind of terrifying, you know? Absolutely. Um, so we just had a few questions for now. And I might call him later or email you if I have some more questions. Sure. But um, starting off, what are some of the most baseline essential roles that you know a small business should have? Like a, a CEO and an accountant, or does it really matter? Is there any standard that everyone should have? Let me ask you this. Are you doing this with friends or family members? Um. Okay. Um, well, the most important thing, I, 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 so I'll give you a couple of general pieces of advice and, and see if we can kind of direct the conversation here and you can, we can course correct as yeah. we go along. Okay. So my first rule, and this is a hard rule, I would never do a yeah. business venture as a partnership. The only ship that won't sail is a partnership. It, it never ever works. The, the only exception to that is are doctors and lawyers. And that's mainly because Doctors and lawyers can function 
in a shared building independently without ever really having to run decisions by each other. But for the most part, if you if you look at any any business partnership, eventually it breaks off. And if your friends or your family members are involved in this, then that usually it, it oftentimes has the unintended result of destroying that friendship or that that relationship. So that that's twice as more of the reason not to do it. So that that's my first tip is find somebody that can that it wants to be the leader that wants to run the business and then the other person works for that first person. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you can't split the profits 50-50, right? That person can take a commission of, you know, of, uh, of you know, he gets 50% of all the sales that come in. That's fine. You can split the money up the same way. But ultimately, the ship has to have one captain. Having two captains never works. So that would be my first advice to you is, yeah. is, is decide who is going to run the thing and then the other people work around it. And another thing that I've seen that works really, really well, and we at AltaSpeed have done this, <clears throat> I have had employees that have come into the company and they have worked on a, on a, on getting a given, um, you know, thing up and running and we ran it for a while. And then they said, well, I want to go off on my own and do this. I won't do a partnership with them, but what I will do is I'll say, okay, you go run that thing. I'll, I'll give you a perfect example, our call system, right? The way that we do, uh, the way that we do support calls for hotels. So they pay a set amount per month, per room per month. And then we have a team of people that answer the phones 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and walk people through the basic things. Is the computer on? Is the Wi-Fi thing on? All of that stuff. Now, we started that in-house, and eventually one of our very talented team members said, I want to I want to start a business doing this call thing, taking all the calls. And I said, you know, here's the thing. I can't really afford, I don't really want to be in the call business thing to begin with, and if that's something that you want to do, I won't go into a partnership with you, but what I will do is you go take the thing, you run it, and we will just contract with you. And so, a hundred percent, the way the money flows, it's exactly the same as if we had gone into a partnership where he's taking, actually he takes more than 50%. He takes like 70% of the money. And then we take our cut on top for actually getting the customer signed up and stuff like that. So the way the money flows is exactly the same as if I had just funded him to start up. But the way it's structured is if anything ever goes awry or we ever want to part ways, there's no harm in doing that because he has his thing. I have my thing and we just work together. Now, as far as how to actually, so, uh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, um, I was going to say, so kind of what you're saying is make sure there's a clear separation of duties, a clear um, uh, line of uh, authority, and yeah. you only have you know the one leader, so you're not constantly fighting and bickering. You can actually get things done. Right. So there's so there's a, so uh, there's actually two things I'll t I'll tell you on that. The first is, and I know this doesn't apply to you, but it might apply to somebody else out there. So I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna lay this down for somebody else. If you have oh, if okay. you're if you're working with friends or you're working with relatives, the most important tip I can give you is just have clear defined roles. When you're at work, you're not mom, you're not dad, you're not the son. You are the CEO, you are the CFO, you are the lead technician, and you would treat the CEO with all due respect as you would a, a CEO, right? And so what? How, do, how does that play out in practice, right? So son goes and works for dad, dad is the CEO, son is the you know general manager, I don't know, I'm just making this up. And we go home for Thanksgiving. When we go home for Thanksgiving, the, you would never, you would never badmouth your CEO, you know, in front of him, right? So you wouldn't have that conversation with your mother. 
So you're not going to talk about business. When we're at home, your dad and I'm son. When we're at work, you're CEO and I'm the general manager. And, and we have to make sure that we respect those those boundaries. And we don't ask for special treatment either, right? If you are a if you're a CEO or CFO, you're going to follow the same. You're going to be held to the same standards as you would anywhere else. And I'll tell you, I think it's too bad that Chris isn't uh, isn't on the program today because him and I were talking about doing a small business thing, and I'd love to get his input on this because I think him and I. Because we're both small business owners, we handle this very, very well. When we're off air, he's he's a friend. And I don't, I, you know, there's oftentimes we'll get into a heated discussion about something and I don't back down. I'll sit there and discuss it with him, you know, at whatever level I need to, to get my point across. And I, you know, I stop. But when we're on air and he's been criticized for this numerous times, when we go on air, he owns a broadcasting network. I'm an employee of that broadcasting network. And so if he puts his foot down and wants to stop a conversation, I shut up because that's that's the way it works is there's a different dynamic there. We're not friends. He's my boss at that point. And, that, and, and I've always tried to show him that respect. And at the same time, He's, you know, he treats me like he would any other co-host, except when the hats come off and then we're just friends. Now we go out, we go out and have beer together. We go out and, and, uh, and, and eat dinner and stuff. And we probably do have a more in-depth personal relationship than he does with a lot of the other co-hosts, but we keep those two relationships very, very separate. And I think we do a really good job at that. Um, so yeah, clear defined roles, I think is what's really going to help your business succeed. Does that help you? Oh yeah, that makes total sense. Great. Well, um, I guess in parting, what I would tell you is try to uh, try to have a vision. And um, if you look at any successful venture, they have four things in common. They have vision, they have focus, they have a plan and they have passion. Now, vision is being able to see the future. It's dreaming in HD to steal a, a Chris Hogan term. A plan is how we get there. So what do we have to do today to make our vision a reality tomorrow? And focus is what ensures that you do, in fact, get there because everything we do has to further the cause. And I struggle with this all the time. Uh, and I'll get to that in a second. Passion is is really it's what inspires the vision. It hones the focus and fuels the plan. And here's the important distinction. And a lot of people fall into this trap. A vision without a plan to get there is just wishful thinking. It's it's not going to get you anywhere. So if you assume that the Linux desktop, you know, is, is just going to get better while you sit idly by, then you better get off your assumptions and do something. You better get involved. You better go to a Linux fest. You better contribute to a project. You better provide support to a new user. The Ask Noah show, for example, has vision. AltaSpeed has vision. We want to see more people using Linux. We have a plan of how to get there. We are going to do a weekly show. We're going to be the cornerstone of the community. You can tune in and get what you need. And then we're going to hand you off to AltaSpeed Technologies, our commercial branch, if there's something that we can't handle in a five-minute radio call. And again, more of that coming towards the end of the hour. But I struggle with the vision part of it because I know where I want to get, but every five minutes I have a new idea of how I can make a buck. I have a new idea of something I could spin off, a new project I could do. And I have to constantly pull myself back and say, no, no, that's not appropriate. That doesn't meet the end goal. That doesn't, that doesn't line up with your vision. That is, that is something, you know, totally auxiliary and maybe it'll work and maybe it won't, but we have to, we really have to hone in on, you know, staying focused. Rob is calling from Illinois. Hi, Rob. Welcome to the Ask Noah show. Hey, Noah, how's it going? Excellent. How can we help today? I got a, uh, I have a question. Um, I'm doing a, a presentation tomorrow at work. I'm trying to, uh, get them to try LibreOffice. Okay. 
and uh, they're they're pretty skeptical. We just bought into a big Microsoft thing, but only for half of our people. So I'm trying to get them to try this for the other half. So I'm buying the guy's lunch. I got a professional-looking impress presentation, of course, um, with music, videos. I got six laptops set up um, to uh, connect via LTSP um, to a Ubuntu Mate um, like host, so that they can try it with some of their their own documents and everything. And I got a a survey at the end, you know, where I'm just going to ask them some yes or no questions, and I'm just really trying to sway them, and I have, you know, math and all that kind of stuff. You got any advice uh, for what else could I do? I'm just trying to put it over the top. Yeah, so the two things that I have found that where I've been the most successful in selling things like LibreOffice, there are two things that I do. The first is, which sounds like you've already done, is I talk about I talk about the cost savings. I talk about the budget. And really, the people most in most organizations, this isn't true across the board, but the vast majority of our, most organizations, the guy making the decision what they're actually going to use is pri- the primary driver to that is budget constraints. And I can't tell you how many times. I, so in IT consulting, we do this thing at the beginning of every year. We sit down, we have the initial year consultation. And that's basically we sit down and we we sit back and we talk to, to everyone and they say, these are the things we want to accomplish in 2017. And, uh, you know, how do we get there? And I say, OK, well, here's what you would need to do. We would need to buy these many machines. We'd have to buy this many software license. We'd have to install this many things. We'd have to run this many cables, so on and so forth. And then at the end of the year, November, December-ish, we sit down and we do uh, uh, we do a yearly review. And that is basically, I explain what we did all year and how we spent their money and what they got for their money. And then I sit back and hope I don't get fired for the next year. That's basically what it amounts to. And what I found time and time again is the primary driver for these decisions is money because most of the time they lay out a plan. They say, this is what we want to do. And I say, okay, it's going to cost you $40,000. And they go, Hmm, how do we get that to $25,000? And the first thing I can do is say, okay, what are you trying to accomplish with Microsoft office? And they say, well, we want to send email. We want to do presentations. We want to do these uh, spreadsheets, stuff like that. I said, okay, what if I could get you the same things for X dollars and never ever say zero because zero or free implies that it's it's an imposter, it's not as good, right? So we never ever do that. What we do is we'll quote out if we we'll quote out a, a you know a, a specific price. In the case of LibreOffice, usually there's a cost associated with setting it up and converting documents, so we'll just quote that out. Other times if it's a piece of software that there isn't really any configuration, we just will charge them and then we just donate that money to whatever the project is to kind of further the project as if they were purchasing a license, right? And so um, right. th- so that's the, that's the first thing I do is I tax the budget side. The second thing I do is I talk about the market realities because you're going to get a lot of companies that will say, well, if this is so great, why is nobody using it? If this is so great, why? You know, and then what I point to is I point to companies like Amazon. Amazon, all of their customer service associates are using desktop Ubuntu, which has LibreOffice installed by default. The entire company of Red Hat, which has, I don't know how many, 40, 50 offices, hundreds of thousand employees all over the world, and they are using LibreOffice. 
And you can take that to tiny, small little businesses like System 76, who has, you know, they're, they're, they're a PC manufacturer that is in Denver, Colorado, that has a single office and all of their staff is in one, fits all inside of one room, and they're using LibreOffice. So it, that tends to expel the myth that, well, we're too small to use this or we're too big to use this. Well, if you can go from, you know, I don't know exactly what Carl's team is, but, you know, 12, 15, something, 17 people, something like that, all the way up to hundreds of thousands at Red Hat. If all of those people can do it, you can do it and you could save money too. Those are usually the two ways I kind of attack that. The other thing I've done is kind of an intermary interim step is I will, I will start them on something like Office 365 and then that allows me to get the Linux desktop introduced. And then usually what you'll find is because LibreOffice is installed there by default, a lot of employees will just kind of naturally go, instead of going to the site and signing in and doing all this, I just click on this button here and, and do it. So you could do the same thing on Windows too, right? You could just, you could migrate them to Office 365. You sell them on, well, it's, you pay one time a year and then you always have the latest version. So Sally isn't sending out of date versions of Excel files to Frank and Frank isn't have the two year old version that we lost the key for. And so we restored his computer. We don't, you don't have to deal with any of that. You just pay your $99 and you always have access to the latest version and just install LibreOffice on the desktop. And what you'll find is people will kind of naturally migrate over there. Does that make sense to you? Um, yeah, it does. That's actually kind of part of what we've done as we're on the Office 365, but we are, you know, we've purchased just the, the web version for half of the users, and then we've purchased the web and the installed version in Office 2016 for the, the other half. And I'm just noticing a trend uh, lately where they keep going, okay, it's too difficult for somebody doing this on the web, so let's just give them the other one. And I just, I, that's a direction I don't want to go. I don't like that yeah. at all. So. Yeah, I, you know, you're, you're preaching to the choir. I'm not a big fan of, of cloud, and I thank you for the call. But, uh, but at the same time, I am a fan of getting to the end goal. And if I have to take one step back to take five steps forwards, I, that's something I'm perfectly willing to do. Will, or I'm sorry, uh, Royal is calling from New York. Hi, Royal. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hi, Noah. Long-time listener, the Royal Gabe here. Hi, fantastic. Great to speak with you again. How are you? I'm doing well. Fantastic. How can we help today? Yeah, so I was actually, uh, I was curious. You always talk about microtic routers or microtic routers, and uh, I actually have one myself, and I was hoping to set up a VPN server so that I could access resources in my house like a web server that i have set up for myself and uh my desktop well i will tell you this Wondering, i don't know which vpn i should try even yeah so um i have done uh, typically what i have done is i have done uh ipsec tunnels and so basically what i will do is i will set up ipsec and um I have used a routing protocol sometimes to do the, the heavy lifting underneath if I think I'm going to expand. So, for example, at AltaSpeed, we have our main router in, at our head office. Um, and then we have a couple branch offices that we just kind of basically store stuff out if it's a remote client and we, you know, we're going to go out there. We need cables and switches and stuff like that. We just kind of have a, a, a place to stash that stuff. But we want to be able to get access to the corporate network. We'll put a branch router in there. Because of that, I use OSPF to, to, to kind of facilitate the routing. You wouldn't have to do that. You could stick with just an IPsec tunnel, but that would be my suggestion. The nice thing about IPsec is it will work across brands, so you're not locked into Microtech. If you ever decide you wanted to go to something else, um, you could. Again, I really like Microtech. The RB750 is like... $39. Well, I think it's the, the hex too is the like, it's like $39. 
and it has all it has the same router OS that their you know three thousand dollar router has. It's just has a slightly less powerful, well, drastically less powerful processor, but it allows you to learn all of the same things on a $35 device, which makes it really, really great for, for getting set up. And if you want more information about that, we actually did an episode of how I set this up for a client. They had a main office and two branch offices. And there's a last episode about that somewhere. I can, uh, I, I, I see you in the chat room. So if you ping me, I can, I can get the information over to you, but uh, it'll walk you through more directly how to set that up. And I also, there's a Microtech expert that I work with all the time and he would be able to help as well. William is calling from, uh, we don't know where, but hi, William. Welcome to the Ask Noah show. Hi. Hi. How can we help today? Oh, sorry about that. Yeah. My call screener got it wrong. How? Oh, sorry about that. Hi, Relan. How can we help today? Hi, um, I'm calling from Trinidad in the Caribbean. Awesome. How can we help? Um, my question, um, there are two major, you know, certification out there, like the LPI course and the one that didn't up. Uh-huh. The um, Institute has as well. Um, which one would you prefer, or which one is there much of a difference? Because the price is much, much different. Would you say that one is a better piece of paper to walk in the door with than the other? Well, I tell you what I found. What I have seen, and what I have, what I have heard from other people in the industry that are hiring is that the LPI. Uh, is 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 a is a very well known certification, and so a lot of people go with that, and it's it's very well recognized. Personally, when I have people come in through the door, and they ask me about uh, certifications, they say, "What certifications do you look for? What certifications do you care about?" There are only a couple that I really really take to heart. Um, a lot of people are big into the CCNA certifications. Um, uh, that's not Linux specific, it's network specific, but I, I use it as a great example because the problem with the, the, the CCNA and what they really did, the Cisco a couple of years ago, they split it into like a higher level CCNA and like an entry level, what they call the CCENT. Um, and the problem with the CCENT certification is it basically tells me that you're really, really good at erasing stuff on a, on a transparency with your saliva and a napkin and, and doing math because like half of the exam is subnetting. And that doesn't really tell me how you can do things in real life. And the, the routers are all, are, are all simulated. Now, I don't know specifically if the LPI does uh, simulation or if it's, or if it's, it's real boxes. Um, but I do know that it has a lot of industry weight. So I guess between the two options that you're giving me, I would say LPI. That said, if you're asking me an open-ended question, what certification would I go to? And I didn't have any, uh, it, like it wasn't, I'm not looking for something specifically from the Linux foundation. I would suggest you take a look at Red Hat certification. And here's why. The way that the Red Hat test works is they give you a working box and they tell you, make these you know, 35 changes to it or do these 35 tasks. And the test is very simple. If you do the 35 tasks and you reboot and all those and your, the, your modifications are persistent and it survives a reboot and you get higher than X amount of percentage, you pass. If it doesn't do those things, then and you get a lower than a certain percentage, then you don't pass. Um, but you're working on real hardware. And so what that tells me when somebody comes through the door and they say, I have an RHCSA, I know right off the bat that that person right there knows how to actually sit down in front of a, a Red Hat server and administrate it. 
And I don't know that I can say that about a lot of other, uh, a, a lot of other uh, certifications. I am going to butcher your name and I am so sorry, my friend, but is it Vera Tanda from the UK? Welcome to the Ask Noah show. How can we help? Vera Tanuda, yes. That's okay, Vera Tanuda. Sorry about that. Quite, it, it's fine, that's fine. Okay, it's quite upset that we're talking about desktop paradigms as it is now because my question is basically about uh, accessibility access to right under the open source. Okay. And specifically the kind of dearth really we have, okay, right, in terms of proper accessibility access case for people with disabilities, especially people okay, right, who are partially sighted or deaf. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing is, I've been I've been with Linux for nearly twenty years now, and I haven't really seen this situation prove much in twenty years. And when you're talking about you know something as grand as the GNOME Desktop and their accessibility project, I look at that and I think to myself, is this as far as we come, really, in twenty years? Because even something as simple as text to speech in different languages is a struggle on Linux. Okay, so if you want to try and find a program that does say, you know, Russian text-to-speech or, you know, Portuguese text-to-speech, you're going to struggle. Mm-hmm. So there's no easy solution. So I just wondered if you come across this, okay, at all in your businesses. Yeah, yeah. You've actually had to uh, accommodate for, uh, you know, uh, accessibility usage and what kind of solutions you came up with. Yeah, sorry. Because like I said, I, I, I can't see any good solutions, okay, right, really coming through. Yeah. So I'll tell you this. I'll start out by saying I have not come across this in my, you know, in my uh, in my day job, my at AltaSpeed Technologies. We've not had to handle any sort of accessibility issues. I have come across it in the JB community, though. In fact, early on, one of the very first episodes I did of the Linux Action Show, we talked about um, accessibility under Linux. And there's a gentleman and he is in the Ask Noah Telegram group, which you can which you'd be welcome to join. It's telegram.asknoahshow.com. he has a a severe uh, sight disability, and so he uses a lot of these tools, magnification tools, speech tools, um, and he has actually worked directly with some of the developers. People like uh, Martin Wimpress have have you know really tried to push the needle forward when it comes to accessibility on Linux. And I know that they have uh, some specific tools that they've landed on that work really well and some that they know that need to be improved, but there is forward momentum on it. It's just... You know, obviously there is a, obviously you are now talking about a niche of a niche because there's only so many people that are willing to use Linux and even less of them have disabilities. And so you're, it's, it's a very tight focus group, but there is help for you. And, uh, if, if you, uh, if you, if you, you can either uh, send me an email and I will put you in contact with some of these people. Or like I said, you can join the Ask Noah Telegram group, telegram.asknoahshow.com. All right. I want to get back to this, um, yeah, the the uh, the extensions inside of GNOME. So again, what I'm suggesting is after you get done tweaking under the hood, then I want to talk about some of the extensions that we use. The first thing I do from the GNOME tweak tool is I just turn on global dark uh, theme. And that basically, you know, as it implies, globally turns on dark stuff all throughout the GNOME desktop. On the workspaces section, I'll change the workspace creation from dynamic to static, and I set it to four workspaces. And basically what that does is it gives me four persistent workspaces rather than dynamically creating them. Because what you'll find is if you let it dynamically create the workspaces for you, you'll put your mail client in workspace two, and then you'll close a window, and all of a sudden your mail client is now in workspace one, and it gets you all out of, you know, whack, and then you get confused. Now, extensions is where we really start doing some crazy stuff. 
The single most common question I've been asked about the Ask Noah show since launching the program is how can people outside the U.S. call into the program? And before I get to what we are going to do with extensions, I want to make a plea for anyone that is outside the U.S. If you want to call into this program and you don't want to get uh, charged a lot of money, we have a solution. Thanks to my friend and colleague, Chase Nunez, we now have an answer to how you can do this. If you go to Skype.com, download the latest version, create an account, you can place a toll-free call in the U.S. without paying a dime. Now, this doesn't require a credit card. It doesn't mean that you have to get a Skype calling number. You just have to create a account, and then you can call us 1-855-450-NOAA-450-6624, completely free from anywhere in the world. Now, we've taken calls from Guatemala, Canada, Germany, and, of course, right here in the U.S. at home. We'd love to take your calls. Uh, so give Skype a try, one 450 noaa Again, that's 450-6624. Okay, so I just want to briefly go through some of these extensions that we use and what they do. The Dash to Dock. This keeps the dock of your favorite application launchers in the screen, and it also features an intelligent height option that will move it out of the way when you have a full screen window. Full disclosure, I don't know that Chris is using this on, on all of his desktops anymore. Uh, he, uh, I think he's kind of going away from the dock thing. I'm still using it heavily. I think it's really great. The intelligent hide feature does not always work perfectly, um, but it works good enough. Ping indicator, this is something that neither Chris or I can live without. It allows you to see in real time what your ping to Google is. Now, this is really useful if, for example, you're doing what I'm doing, which is you're on air broadcasting and you, you're, you're using the internet to decide how, how, how well your broadcast is going. This, this extension is, in a, is invaluable. The refresh Wi-Fi connections, basically, okay, I'll start with this. It boggles my mind how this is not a default in GNOME, but basically this allows you to have a button to refresh your Wi-Fi connection. So let's say, for example, you power up your phone's hotspot, you want to connect to it right away. Instead of having to sit there and wait a few minutes or toggle your Wi-Fi off and on, this extension adds a little refresh button so your Wi-Fi connection dialog uh, you know, refreshes and then you can see all the new networks. Top icons, by default, GNOME does this really irritating thing where it has like this little drawer at the bottom of your screen and it slides out to show the status indicators for like OwnCloud or Dropbox or, you know, whatever. Um, and it can be somewhat frustrating because for one, you it's out of sight, out of mind. So if you are if you have an xCloud instance syncing and it stops all of a sudden or it loses connection, you're not necessarily going to notice unless you go down to this drawer and open it up and see what the heck your computer's doing. Also, tends to get in the way of certain applications. So top icon puts all of these icons at, well, as you might expect, the top. And so it goes right at the top bar where they belong. Now, all of these extensions can be installed right from your web browser by visiting extensions.gnome.org. If you're on Entargos, then you already have the plugins necessary to install these extensions out the site. Now, if you built Arch from scratch, or if you're using another distro, you may need to manually go find the plugins for the browser of your choice. Joel is calling from Augusta. Hi, Joel. Welcome to the Ask Noah show. How's it going, Noah? Excellent. How can we help today? So... Uh, me, personally, I'm a very occasional Linux user, and I like to experiment with distributions on occasion. Mm -hmm. And um, I have used uh, I have used VirtualBox, and I have used VMware for classes and stuff. Uh, do you have any experience with using Hyper-V for uh, Linux distributions or and or if it's, like, even viable at all? Because I'm sort of experimenting right now, and the only issue I seem to have is, like, slow network connection. Yeah. Inside of the VM. Well, I'll tell you what. I have a client at this very moment 
it's actually, it's a really interesting scenario. So basically they were an all Windows shop and they have all uh, Windows desktops, all Windows servers, Windows, Windows everywhere. Everywhere has Windows. And what we did, first thing we sat down and I told them, you know, very early on, I said, we will take you as a client, but you have to let us make some changes to your infrastructure that, that, you know, so we can better support you because, and I've said this time and time on the program before, we will not knowingly implement a system where we know bad things are going to happen because it's just not cost effective for us. And so what we did was we started by looking at what they had for servers. And there's a really unique tool put out by Microsoft that basically you, it's a little executable and you run it and it literally turns a desktop windows install into a hyper V instance. And so the first thing we did was virtualized a bunch of their desktops. So took all these computers that they were running on bare metal, virtualized them and put them into their, their existing hyper V system. Then the second thing we did was we spun up a Linux desktop inside of Hyper-V. So this is kind of what you're talking about, right? We ran a Linux instance. And so far, I have not noticed any real problems. I mean, it actually, it's very performant. Um, I, we, I'm using x to go to access it. And if I didn't know better, I would say it's running on metal. So, I mean, the short answer to your question is yes, we have experience. The short answer to your question is yes, it works very well. Finishing an interesting story, though, what we're doing is we are slowly... Can we, you can take Hyper-V instances and there's a command to turn those into libvirt-d instances. And so what we are doing is we've set up a duplicate virtualization host and one by one we are moving all of these Hyper-V guests over to this libvirt-d server. Once all of those get migrated over to this secondary server that we have, we'll then reformat, reinstall the their main big horse uh, horsepower server with uh, the latest version of CentOS. We'll put libvirt D on it, and then we'll simply move all of those virtual guests in libvirt D back. So it's interesting. We we started with an all Windows environment. We virtualized inside of Windows. We're going to then move all of those virtualization over to Linux, and then switch their actual infrastructure over to Linux. Which I think is, if you think about it, from start to finish, is kind of a cool story. But does that answer your question? Sort of. Um, what I'm thinking about is like on a um, lap, like making a not really a server, but on like a personal lap, like a laptop, because I am like very, very experimental and like Hyper-V looks very interesting in my mm -hmm. eyes. I mean, I'm, I'm a very, I'm like very interested in Linux and like using it on occasion to try to, to experiment and all that. Um, I, I guess I wouldn't use Hyper-V for like, so you're talking about like doing like, like running the Hyper-V and then, and then, you know, full screening it and then using it as kind of like a desktop environment. Yeah. I don't Something think like I, I I don't think I would do that. I think if I was going to do that, I would do VirtualBox. And the reason is, Hyper-V is really set up to 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 virtualize servers, and it does that very very well. But if you're talking about desktop stuff, one thing that's really really nice is things like being able to share folders in between the host and the guest. One thing that's really nice is being able to have full screen. So when you take over it, it like it picks up your client's native resolution and scales. I've not had either of those. I mean, granted, I have not tried extensively, but I've not uh, I've not had either of those two things work very well inside of Hyper-V. VirtualBox has a plugin for 3D acceleration, so you can get uh, you can get a little bit more performance. It starts to feel like you're actually on the on the desktop. I guess my suggestion to you would would not be to use Hyper-V for a for a desktop thing. If you're going to do that, I would use VirtualBox. But as far as does Linux work inside of Hyper-V? Yes, I think it works very well. Um, Jordan is calling from Canada. Hi, Jordan. How are you? Oh, I didn't click the button. Sorry about that, Jordan. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. How can we help? Um, I, uh, I manage my wife's blog on a WordPress instance on DigitalOcean, and uh, it's 
1404 right now, and I've tried uh, duplicating it and then uh, and then upgrading the 1604, but I break WordPress every time. I'm I'm fairly comfortable with the command line and everything, but I I, I just don't know of a good way to keep. She's got about a year's worth of blogging multiple times a week. I'm trying to keep all the the original content without losing it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if you're going to like my answer, but I do have an answer for you. Um, Go ahead. Yeah, so here's what it is. I actually had this very discussion with Wimpy last week, and the conclusion that that him and I came to is go to static content. Don't use WordPress. Um, And he has moved his blog off of WordPress, and he did that before it was even cool to have WordPress. And uh, Popey, Alan Pope, uh, who's a member of the community, was hosting his blog on WordPress and uh, with that latest round of attacks, he's moved to static content. And so, you know, there's WordPress is a great thing and it's awesome if you have the time and effort to maintain it. But like you say, it just, it's not always practical. And so I would suggest moving more towards static content. Uh, I know that's probably not the answer you'd want to hear, but yeah, that's the, <laughs> I guess that's the answer I'm giving you. Does that, does that make sense to you? Uh, yeah, it does. I uh, I have a hard time convincing my wife to. Uh, she actually uh, writes her content on her iPad. Sure, you know, it's gonna make cringe, but uh, oh yeah, she. Uh, I, I can't even get her to use my desktop. Uh, my my desktop to to do it. So it's. Uh, I think that's gonna be a whole another round of. Uh, conversation. Yeah, I, I hear you, man. As, as you know, I, I convinced my wife to, to migrate off a lot of technology. So I've, I've been in the boat you're in and I, I definitely have some sympathy for you, but best of luck. And yeah, that would be my suggestion is move to static content. Hey guys, I have two words that is going to make, that are going to make a lot of you really, really happy. Video content. Since the day we announced that we were bringing last to an end, people have been asking for Linux centric video content. And now, uh, well, Actually, for the last like week or so, I have been having secret meetings with Chris and we have been I've been batting around and we've been tossing around ideas. So this may turn into something bigger in the future. But for right now, the Ask Noah show is going to answer your wishes and bring you some video content. So most of you know that I uh, I learned that Lenovo ThinkPads are actually manufactured at the top of Mount Kilimanjaro. They're then brought here via carrier pigeon. And that's why it takes three or four months to get a properly configured laptop. But be that as it may. Right now, in my grubby little hands, I have my brand new shiny, tiny Lenovo ThinkPad X270, and Linux runs on it, and it is freaking awesome. And I have put it through one of the most exhaustive, refined product reviews that I think I've ever done, and we're going to have that video live on our page starting Tuesday at youtube.com slash asknoah. So make sure to check that review out, and like and subscribe. If you like the content, if there's a lot of energy behind it, we'll continue to do more of that. And again, maybe that will turn into something more uh, solid, but for right now, it's just going to be small little videos on YouTube. Okay. Um, so last week on the Ask Noah show, we were fortunate enough to have Martin Wimpress with us. And I thought he did a really fantastic job at exemplifying why the Linux desktop wasn't, uh, wasn't going anywhere. And I say that in a positive way. It's not, it's not going away anywhere. Um, and how we as a community can be more competitive on it. And I can't thank Martin enough for coming on uh, to the U.S. and allowing me to pester him every waking moment. Uh, you know, it's, it's funny. I, he would wake up in the morning and I would say, do you want to get breakfast? And really, that was code for, can you sit down across from me and let me ask you questions all day? And he was uh, he was a good sport about it. But um, 
The truth is the world needs more wimpies because he has the perfect balance between optimism and pragmatism. I thought the whole show was pretty well suited for noobs. I thought that applied to anyone, whether you're just getting started all the way up to experienced Linux users. So we didn't do a noob segment, but now that we're back in the saddle again, let's take a moment to carve out a, a spot for the noobs among us. A few weeks ago, we talked about Mastodon. Now Mastodon, if you remember, is an, is a decentralized open source social network. It's an alternative to Twitter and Facebook and the growth has been absolutely fantastic. And uh, we talked about how the growth had kind of started to, we could see the growth trend and it's really picked up some traction. Now, a huge thank you to some folks in the Ask Noah Telegram group. Again, telegram.asknoahshow.com. Michael, Greg, and Alex, and of course, many more. Those are a couple names to name a few. They have given us the Ask Noah, given the Ask Noah show, our own instance of Mastodon. And so if you want to get involved with the community, if you're looking for a way to uh, interact with us, if you want to get on a server that's surrounded by other folks who live, eat, and breathe open source and Linux, and that is moderated too. So we have moderators in there that we try to weed out if anyone is, uh, is you know, gets too carried away Um you know, we pulled them out. Now the server is federated. So that means that you can talk to other servers. And it also means that we can't necessarily control all of the content that comes in. But if you choose to just see updates from our servers, we do moderate our server. Um, that is available at linuxrocks.online. Uh, sorry, linuxrocks.online. Linuxrocks.online. It's our community Mastodon server. It's built around Linux. It runs on Linux. And uh, the Ask Noah show, it's federated so you can talk and interact with all of your friends and colleagues on other Mastodon servers. So you don't have to feel like you're limited to just Linux or the Ask Noah show. You can, you know, you can interact with everyone. But uh, LinuxRocks.online, sign up, of course, is free. Um, and the server is powered by Linux. So huge thanks to the community for setting that up. I'd invite you all to go check it out. Um, and I'd love to connect with you there. Now, hey, guys, we are looking to support a... Uh, I, I need you guys... To, to come in close and hear me out because I have to have a serious conversation with you. We need to so show some support to the JB network. They have gone all in. We have gone all in on Linux. The new JB1 studio is rocking all Linux hardware, but it has really put us in a pinch because every time I talk to someone about Apple, the first thing they would tell me is how great the resale value is. The resale value is excellent. I just love my MacBook because the resale value is wonderful. The resale value of my iMac is fantastic. If you buy a Mac Pro, the resale value is fantastic. You can sell it for thousands of dollars more than you... Okay, that's an exaggeration. But MacBook, Mac enthusiasts are very, very enthusiastic about the fact that the resale value is through the roof. And... Oh my gosh, it, we are living it right now <clears throat> and it does not seem to be the case. We were counting on the sale of some of this old uh, Apple hardware to fund the transition to Linux. And now that the studio is running 100% Linux, we need to keep it that way. But in order to do that, we need to sell these Macs. So I'm going to have links in the show notes to the auctions of where we're selling this. If these, if you know somebody that is in the market of uh, of one of these uh, that wants an iMac or a Mac Pro, and you can bet your bottom dollar when these were purchased, they were some of the nicest configuration money can buy. So they're still going to wipe the floor with most of the hardware that you can get on the shelves from Best Buy brand new. There's a 27-inch iMac. It's an Intel i7. There's a super, super beefy Mac Pro. And this is the real Mac Pro, not like the crappy trash can one that they went to where you can't actually do anything if you're a professional. So make sure to check those links out in the show notes. If this is something you'd be interested in, or if you know anyone that's looking for a well taken care of powerful Mac and trash computer, we would really appreciate it. And you know, in a, in a way, 
in a big way, you would be supporting the network by doing this. So if you know somebody or maybe, you know, a group of people that want to go in on it or something like that. And, uh, I don't know, I, I'll just throw this out there. If finance allows, and you're within reasonable geographical distance, I'll even come out and install Linux on it for you and set it up. If, uh, if you can find some, if, if you're interested in purchasing it, but that brings us to the end of this week's show. We'll be back next Monday at 6 PM central. A huge thank you to Ben, our producer, Sarah, our call screener, and Rakai, our video editor. We'll hand it off to Crosspoint coming up next on Logos Radio, KEQQ 88.3 LPFM Grand Forks.